you just have so many things to do in a startup that, you know, we just kind of went, oh, okay, well, like Dylan, you're already like, you, you've started with the product over there. So like, why don't you run with that? Don, great. You know, you're working with this engineer over here. That makes sense. That's an area that you feel comfortable in. And Michael's like, I've got all the rest, you know, like I'm going to clear the decks and like figure out how to sell and market. I mean, we did sort of at some point stop and go, are we all wearing the right hats? And then I think our answer was like, yeah, probably. It's not the natural hat that we would have probably guessed based on our past experience, but it it did seem right. Welcome to Engineering Founders, the show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company. Dylan Etkin, Don Brown, and Michael Knighton, co-founders at Sleuth, give us a rare glimpse behind the scenes into the early co-founder relationships with the decision makers responsible for almost all aspects of the company's strategy and operations. We get into tons of the dynamics between co-founding a company with three people, including things like navigating the division of responsibility, the challenges and opportunities moving from a large company like Atlassian to starting your own company, how they approached creating repeatable customer acquisition channels, strategies for product handoffs while you scale, and more. Let me introduce you to Dylan, Don, and Michael. Dylan Etkin is CEO at Sleuth. He was one of the first 20 employees at Atlassian and was a founding engineer and first architect of Jira. Don Brown is CTO at Sleuth. He was an early architect at Atlassian for over 10 years, working on products including Confluence, HipChat, and Atlassian Cloud. And Michael Knighton is COO at Sleuth. Michael built Atlassian's cloud offerings from the ground up. He now runs go-to-market and finance at Sleuth. A bit about Sleuth. Sleuth is an engineering efficiency platform that provides a complete and accurate view of your door metrics, giving you visibility into bottlenecks and tools to automate workflows. Sleuth works by integrating with your entire tool chain from issue tracker, source control, CICD, feature flag, incident tracker, to observability tools to provide the baselines, the context, and insights you need to improve efficiency. With Sleuth, you can accurately track your door metrics and improve engineering efficiency. Enjoy our conversation with Dylan, Don, and Michael at Sleuth. Dylan, Michael, Don, really excited to have you all here and dive into the Sleuth story. How are you three doing? What's going on? Yeah, good. Start of a a new year. So exciting time, you know, like uh, we sit down and do some planning and sort of give ourselves goals for the year. So it's it's, it's a good time to, to be chatting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here for sure. And uh, yeah, I'm also similarly excited for the start of the new year. We're, as Dylan says, we're doing lots of planning and lots of thinking about what we're going to do. Uh, and so I, I definitely came back into the new year with a head full of steam. And actually, to the extent that I didn't realize that the first day back was actually a company holiday and I was yelling at everybody for not showing up to work before I figured it out. I'm like, all right, well, let's work anyway. Come on, people. What about you, Don? How are you doing? Pretty good. Yeah, just getting back into it. Had some sickness for the Qatar. Went to the World Cup in Qatar, which was super duper fun. But having the world's people all together, especially this day and age, means you have to pay some consequences. But it was worth it. Excited to be back and going. And thanks for having us on the podcast. Absolutely. Well, we're excited to have you three here. To dive in, would love to start with the the Sleuth origin story and how you three came together as co-founders. I think this is the first time Jerry and I were just talking about this. We've got the whole crew here. This is the first time we've had three co-founders on the show. Um, so bring us into the story. How did you all connect and create this idea behind Sleuth? 
Uh, well, maybe I'll, I'll start with this one. Donna and Michael and I have known each other, I think, over 15 years now. I was very early hired at Atlassian. Don and Michael were shortly thereafter, and were brought in to sort of build like the first hosted version of uh, Confluence and Jira. They uh, sort of started in the U.S. and then shortly thereafter moved to Australia, where I was already living. And then I was on the Jira team at the time. And I, I at some point, I don't remember what it was, they were racing towards a deadline or something like that. And they said, hey, we need somebody with Jira knowledge over on the thing. And I went, okay, and sort of sat down. And I think Don sort of said, what do, what do you want to do? And that was that was my introduction to, to Don and Michael, probably o- almost 15 years ago. So known each other for quite some time. Spent a lot of time inside of Atlassian as well. Uh, all of us doing, honestly, probably multiple lifetimes worth of things within inside of Atlassian. Don, Michael, do, you, do either of you remember that moment connecting with Dylan? What was that like? Yeah, specifically, it was a project to take. At the time, Atlassian only had software behind the firewall. You had to download it, install it. There's no such thing as cloud. And this is circa 2006 or so. And they decided, hey, what's this cloud thing? We're going to build something for it, or rather take our existing products and make it work. And so we assembled a super team of sorts, which included Dylan from Jira and a few others from different teams to come together and how to take all these behind the firewall, single tenant applications, make them work in the cloud, make them scale. Now, to be fair, the actual to realize that vision took probably 10 plus years, but that's where we started. I think we even shipped that version within, God, I want to say like nine months. It was crazy quick. Yeah, ooh, ooh, that's exactly a, right. Yeah, I remember. Sorry, go ahead, Dylan. No, I just was hoping you were going to bring up Fireball. That's exactly the story I was going to tell. So, uh, so we we got this uh, we got this super team uh, as Don mentions, which was like Dylan from Jira, then Charles, this guy from Confluence, and so forth. And we were just excited to have this crew together. So I'm the non-technical one, right? Like I don't write code. I've got a bit of a product and finance background all over the place, and we're sitting there. And so as is often the case in back in the day, they're talking developer things and I just tune it out, right? Because I'm just thinking about whatever, Star Wars or something. And the whole idea at that time was to deliver to our hosting provider a tarball, which had all these different things that went into it that was the ultimate executable that would deploy the application. And so I hear them talking, blah, 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 developer speak. And then I hear, I stop and I said, did you just say fireball? And Dylan said, no, I said tarball. He's like, we can call it Fireball if you want. I was like, yes. And so we called it Fireball. <laughs> and for years after that, new developers would start and they're Googling or trying to find out what a Fireball is. We just introduced it into the lexicon and it became a, a thing that outlived. It was probably my greatest contribution to it last year. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I think, a foreshadowing to some of the things I wanted to, we wanted to ask you three, uh, especially around some uh, nomenclature naming and, and future things like that. So I'm going to table that for one moment, but um, I wanted to scrub ahead a little bit. So it, it clearly sounds like you three connected and had hit it off and were able to do great work together. And that has sort of set the foundation for what you all doing, are doing at Sleuth now. So scrubbing ahead a little bit, how did Sleuth come to be? Like, And how did you three connect together and make the decision to want to do this together? It's pretty interesting. I mean, in the sense that it was something that I was working on for quite some time, but then come to find out a little later that it was something that each of us had kind of internally pitched in some way, shape or form at Atlassian over different times. And so, uh, you know, it was obviously something that was top of mind for the three of us, but kind of coming from almost different directions. I'd say the way that it kind of crystallized and evolved, I had been working on Jira for ages uh, and then transitioned onto Bitbucket. Bitbucket was a, a very early adopter of continuous delivery. You know, we started uh, working in that way in about 2010. And that was the time where GitHub was really quite big. Pull requests were all of a sudden a very exciting thing. You know, we were doing maybe a deploy every other day or something like that. Uh, and it was a pretty small team. 
And everything was pretty calm, or not calm, but certainly able to keep your finger on the pulse of what was going on. Uh, and then as that team sort of grew, as you know, we got better and better at the practice, started to realize that there was just gaps. And it came from a number of different directions, right? It was people on high sort of saying, hey, you're working differently on Bitbucket than the rest of the folks at Atlassian. How is that going? Like, are you guys doing a better job of delivering your software than the other parts of the organization? Is it worse? How do you know? And similarly, we would have like incidents and not necessarily know why they were being caused. And the kind of through line that really captured my imagination was that we were treating deploys like a second-class citizen when really that was like the instigation of everything that was actually happening. And here we were working at the Jira company, building like, you know, a premier source code hosting and review tool. And I couldn't say what it was that we shipped, whether it was going well, what the lead time of that looked like, whether it was having a positive or negative impact on customers. That just felt like a giant gap. Yeah, because you can imagine Jira was all about the issue. If it was all about, you know, once you put in an issue, you're good. Issue is great for capturing ideas. It's great for organizing ideas and even tracking maybe as it goes through, assuming you have some way to automate the state transitions. But then when does that issue ship? When did it ship? When did it ship in staging versus production? How do people know? I think that was kind of at the crux of what Selen's talking about there. That was just missing. And how did you three identify that you were all working on the same problem, but from a different angle? Like when, when did you be like, oh my gosh, like Michael's been hacking at this thing for a while. What was that discovery moment like? Yes. When was it that Michael was hacking on that thing? That's what I <laughs> want to know. <laughs> well, it was maybe a little bit that Dylan was hacking on that thing. When I first left Atlassian, you know, I'd been doing management for ages and I kind of wanted to prove my, to myself that I could still write code and thought, can I hack together a little bit of this idea? So I had some working code base actually quite a while ago, and then got involved in another small startup that, funny enough, ended up back at the mothership at the side of Atlassian, did another couple of years there. It was an idea that was exciting enough that Atlassian said, hey, you can't work on this while you're working here. And, you know, during that period, you know, that's when Don and Michael sort of moved away from Atlassian and started having more adventures on their own. It was the kind of thing that just didn't leave. You know, it was the thing that I got excited about when I was having conversations with anybody. And, you know, Michael and I live in a close vicinity. And so we would get drinks now and again. And when we would talk about that, all of a sudden his eyes would light up and my eyes would light up. And I'm like, what's going on there? When I eventually decided like, okay, I'm going to give this a go. I'm leaving Atlassian. I knew I wanted co-founders, but you know, co-founders is one of those things where you don't just jump on Tinder and take the first swipe, right? <laughs> you're, you're getting married and uh, you want to be careful about that sort of thing. And you, you never know who is important in your life that's at the right time. I could see once I made the jump that all of a sudden there was a shift in Michael. And uh, I don't know, Michael, if you want to add any color to, to that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, we Dylan and I have been talking about it off and on for a while. And uh, as he mentioned, I had left to go run products at another company and then had eventually convinced Don to come over and work with me there. And it was only about a year and a half into that project. And I felt like I still had a lot of work to do there uh, on the project that we were doing. But then when Dylan reached out, I've always wanted to be part of a startup. I've always wanted to build something. I've always wanted to have that experience. And being non-technical, we have to have technical co-founders. And I couldn't imagine anybody better than you know Dylan, who I'd known for 15 years at that point. We worked on many things together. We knew we had the same cultural basis. We knew we had the same values. We knew we had the same approach to work, that sort of thing. And so it was a, a no-brainer. I remember like, I asked my wife and she was like, well, you can't not do it. I was like, it's true. I can't not do it. We have to do this. And then I didn't think that Don would be available because, you know, he had just recently joined a company that I had recruited him for. But then we were super excited to have that conversation because it brings a really nice compliment to the team. I think Dylan and I are very pragmatic and 
outcome focused and Don is very creative and articulate and brings a different energy. And so I think it really creates a, a great compliment. So I, you're right that I haven't seen too many examples of three co-founders, but I think for us, it's a great balance. It's working really well. Don, your story is interesting here because I think there's a lot of trepidation sometimes about approaching somebody with a new opportunity, especially if they maybe had just joined a, a company. And so can you share a little bit about your perspective and what, what drew you into the problem? Yeah, sure. I would say kind of one thing that I've learned is there's two things that you should look for in where you're working. Number one, you should look at the values that they live, not the values that they say on a website or they talk about the values that they live. And Atlassian had values that are very important to me. And I still resonate strongly with those things like open by default, things like be the change you seek, things like that. That's one aspect. And the other aspect I found is that technologies come and go, frameworks come and go, new technical problems come and go. But the people that you work with, those are the people that really have probably the strongest influence on your happiness. I found that, you know, as they always say, you join a company because as a cool technical problem, you leave a company because you hate your boss. And so I've always tried to invert that and say, how about I go to places that I like who I work with, I admire and I respect them. And the technical part, yeah, we might write one language in one day and another framework. Another. That doesn't matter. I always find interesting technical problems. And so that was probably my common thread through it. When I finally did decide to leave Atlassian, it was because I wanted to follow Michael and believed in what he was doing. And then when he left to join Dylan, I thought, hey, there's an opportunity to do a startup at a small thing. We were at Atlassian when, what was it? I think Dylan was there when it was 20 or 30 people. I was there around 40. So 40 and now it's five or 10,000. I don't even know what it is nowadays. So we wanted to go back to those moments where it was small, where we could have an influence, we can make a difference. We're in a large company, you kind of lost that a little bit. So in my case, it was driven by the desire to really make a difference, but grounded in that concept of make sure you're working with people that you respect, that have the same values as you and that you enjoy working with. That's an incredible thing to share about your, your co-founders and I think helps tee up sort of a, another area would love to dive into a little bit. Michael, you sort of mentioned, you know, Don helped balance out the perspective that both you and Dylan brought to the table. And Don, you you just mentioned about the shared values and wanting to be around people that you admire, respect, and inspire you. And so I was wondering if we could dive a little bit deeper into the dynamic between you three and, and how you three work together. And I think the other side that's really special is just in some of the research for this conversation, you three spend a lot of time really contributing to the tech ecosystem, whether that's broadly within starting companies or like more specifically in your focus areas. And I think that's particularly unique. I think there's oftentimes the dynamic of a more public facing person and, you know, people behind the scenes doing other stuff that aren't recording the videos or contributing to different events and things like that. Talk a little bit more about your dynamic between the three of you. How did you figure out the experience of working together and getting things done in the process of building Sleuth? I mean, I think from my perspective, I would say it's not, it's a, it's not a job that's ever done, right? You're never like, okay, we figured it out. We did a lot of things correct in terms of being consistent in how we think about hiring and the types of people we want to bring in, those sorts of things. But it's like, you know, the analogy Dylan mentioned earlier with marriage, it, it is a marriage. It is, we talk constantly, we have, you know, exec coaching that we do to help us work through problems. So it's, it's always an evolution. Something that we talk about a lot is like coming from a place of uh, trust and trust in intent and believing that even if we don't like something the person is saying they were we believe that they have the right intent and that goes a long way so that's kind of my perspective yeah that's something i've learned from and, and i haven't done this professionally i have a friend that does this professionally and does water remediation rights getting the government and corporations together to fight design water issues and one of the key things they say in mediation is always find that common ground that thing that everybody agrees with that we all want x we all want something to succeed we all want the earth to survive you know things like that start there 
And then you deal with the conflict in that light. And so that's where I go back to the values thing. I know I'm sounding like a broken record here, but when you have those same values about being open, about trusting, about choosing action instead of just, you know, talking about it all day, that gives you kind of that foundation. So then when you do have disagreements of, oh, I think it should be blue, I think it should be yellow, whatever, you can stop and go back to, okay, we all want this to succeed. We all want to, you know, do the best thing for the customer. Let's talk about it in that light. And that does simplify it. But as Michael said, it's definitely not a one and done thing as any marriage relationship is. Yeah, I I would agree with everybody there. That thing that Michael mentioned is assuming positive intent. You know, you've known each other for so long. If somebody's coming at something hot, it's because they care. It's not because they're trying to just like come in hot for no real reason. But also, I think that in terms of just like deciding how to delineate what, it kind of just felt natural when we started the thing. We were, you just have so many things to do in a startup that, you know, we just kind of went, oh, okay, well, like Dylan, you're already like, you, you've you started with the product over there. So like, why don't you run with that? You have a vision for where that's going to go over the next few bits, right? We are like, Don, great. You know, you're working with this engineer over here. That makes sense. That's an area that you feel comfortable in. And Michael's like, I've got all the rest. You know, like I'm going to clear the decks and like figure out how to sell and market. And you know what I mean? We just kind of went, okay, let's get down to this thing. And I mean, we did sort of at some point stop and go, are we all wearing the right hats? And then I think our answer was like, yeah, probably. It's not the natural hat that we would have probably guessed based on our past experience, but it, it did seem right. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things you don't realize how many jobs it is. It's kind of like running a podcast. You think like, oh, I get to seek a microphone and have to know how to interview people. No, you have to know how to record. You have to know the dynamics of audio, video, and, and publication, and marketing, and all the different things. And a startup obviously is no different. Marketing is such a deep field in, in sales and finance and HR. It's just so many things. So being able to have three people to divvy it up meant that you were able to do a better job. Dylan has a fairly technical background and you're the CTO. Uh, what's the kind of dynamic? Because they can probably win him on a lot of things. Yeah, that's a fascinating one, right? Because it has advantages and disadvantages, we will say. So <laughs> Dylan was probably, when I joined Atlassian, probably the top two to three maybe technical people at the company. Very, very deep technical. He was the first Jira architect, for example, except After that, for a few years, he switched into management and kind of went that route. I stayed, I was a developer in kind of management, went more technical. Well, I guess I was always technical, you know, tech lead type thing. And then went the architect route. And then the last company I was at, it was a chief architect. And so definitely more on the technical side. He was more on the management side. However, the code was actually written by Dylan in 2015 initially. And so all the code base is his. So it definitely was was advantage, disadvantage. I would say one of the advantages is as you're talking, because he runs the product team. So as you're talking about should a feature exist, not only does he understand technically, okay, you're going to have to build a database and that's going to take time. And yes, you're going to do all this work and there's going to be nothing to show the customer. That's how software works. He understands that at a fundamental level which is useful, but that's doubly useful in our particular case because we're building a tools for developers, for engineering managers. And so his experience in that is able to feed back into that product process to create a much better product. In fact, I was just had a conversation today talking about how useful it is that he's involved in the product work because he knows it at a deeper fundamental level than someone who's just jumping in the domain for six months and trying to figure it out. What you think would happen, which is every technical decision Dylan jumps in and overrides or is involved in the PRs and saying, this isn't right, or why are you screwing up my code? I did it this way for a reason. Weirdly enough, has not happened. And I'm not going to say this is 
for everybody. <laughs> I'm just saying in my particular case, he is really good about knowing when to be a sounding board and saying, hey, I've, if you want to talk about a deep problem, trying to figure out a direction, I'll give you some ideas without crossing that line and saying, well, you really should have written that in Node or you really should have done this. So again, broken record, I'm going to go back to the relationship part is understanding kind of and respecting each person because I think that's part of it, right? If you don't trust and respect somebody, then you're going to feel this need to get involved and fix it. I don't, I don't think you're going to do the right thing. I need to help you out. But if you start from that trust standpoint, then the interaction is very different. Is Dylan still allowed to uh, decode? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I shouldn't. <laughs> if we have a process that we cannot catch things through a review process for staging environments and all that, for a junior developer, we trust a junior developer, we certainly would trust a CEO. It's not the code that's the problem. It's the 80% of maintaining and dealing with issues and whatever, that's the problem. And so having a person who wrote something is the only one that knows how it works, and then it breaks later, and that person's off on meetings and talking to VCs and whatever, that can be a problem. Uh, my next question is for Dylan. It's your initially you cut it up and it's like your baby and now as Don joined as team started girl, you have to uh, kind of hand it over to other people. A lot of taking off founders start that way. How do, how do you navigate? Like Don says, there's a ton of trust there, right? Like, so I, I've seen the accomplishments that Don has made over a pretty storied career. So like, it's not like you're just giving it over to some rando who you don't have a lot of confidence in. Uh, so that obviously makes everything a lot easier. I'd say one of the harder parts for me is that I really enjoy that side of things. So like very early days in Sleuth, Don and I were having like a lot of technical conversations where it was like, this won't scale or that won't this or, hey, let's change the restful URLs of like the entire application and let's try and think ahead and whatever. Right. And I'm like, that's fun. But, you know, it's a natural progression, just like sort of like stepping back and back and back and not being involved in those things. And so more than anything, I probably just miss it from the personal fun side of things. I really enjoy being able to sort of zoom out and say, let's worry about the product level side of things and, and less about the technical stuff. And again, like, you know, we've been really fortunate in bringing on very technical people and not just Don and, you know, having a great engineering organization that joined us too. And each of them kind of just like earning trust very, very quickly. And you kind of just know they're going to do this far better than, than I could possibly do it. The one thing I will say, Don didn't say this because he's very nice, uh, but that I come with a double-edged sword, right? Because just like I can like look at product and say, you know, maybe this will take this long and let's be realistic about this. <laughs> I can also look at product and be very unrealistic and be like, that's not that hard. Come on, we just have to do this one thing or this other thing. And he's like, yeah, don't do that. Please, please stop doing that. And I always laughed at like the Atlassian uh, founders because they were also very technical. And then like, it seemed like the second they stepped away from the keyboard, suddenly their estimates got very unrealistic. And I've done exactly the same thing. And I'm like, all right, now I need to like give them 15 years worth of an apology in my mind. Because uh, yeah, I'm like, what? Well, that's going to take us a week, right, Don? Well, it's like watching a high school football game. You're like, I played football in high school. If that was me out there, man, I would have hit that pass. Dude, you're 45. You ain't hitting shit. Come on. Sorry if I can't <laughs> I don't know, but you got to be realistic. I can't tell you how many physical injuries I've had thinking that I could do things I could do when I was younger. I tried to make a diving catch once and yeah. I ended up uh, breaking my clavicle. So Ooh. just to extend the metaphor as far as possible to bodily injury. Uh, I will say one more thing about that real quickly, because I'm now in the process of taking all the stuff that I was working on in coding and handing it off to another generation of coders and architects. And it is kind of a, a similar process. And I would say kind of one key that I found, it's a lesson that I learned as a parent. If you're going to take away a baby's toy, 
you don't take away the baby's toy. You jingle another toy and give that to them, and then you just sneak that one away. And so I think sometimes as a technical <laughs> co-founder, you're so focused on the code and things that you don't realize all the other things you should be doing. You should be having team scrum meetings or you know organization meetings, planning meetings, talking to marketing, all the other stuff. And it's by understanding and appreciating that you're more able to let the other things go. I wanted to cover another side of this of what we're talking about because Don, you had mentioned you know the hidden work of building the business, and I think Dylan or Michael, you mentioned the sort of the clear the decks moment. Um, and so Michael, I was wondering in that clear the decks moment where Dylan was focused maybe more on on product, Don more on the technical side of things. Like bring us into like some of the blind spots that came up that were those clear the decks hidden work elements that you were dive, diving into. Yeah, I mean it's so much right. When I said okay, you guys build the product, I'll do everything else. I didn't even really quite contemplate what that meant, right? It's like you're building out accounting systems, you're figuring out how to do state taxes when you hire people in different states, you're doing like all these different things and you're trying to figure out how to do sales and marketing. And I was like, oh, I've, I've read articles about this. How hard could it be? And he's like, oh, actually extremely hard. Like for example, realizing that I'm not good at marketing and I can't fake it. So we need to hire people to do that. Like that was a big learning for me because I thought, I could learn how to do it. I did kind of learn how to do sales because learning how to do sales is mostly about practice and figuring out how to use your ears more than your mouth, that sort of thing, right? So those were uh, the big things for me um, was just how to fill in and how to recognize the limitations and hire when you have limitations, I think was sort of the, some of the big learnings for me. Going from zero to one is something that's fun to me, like having a blank slate and starting to fill it in is really fun, I think, for all of us. The more recent challenge around that has been, okay, we all just did it ourselves for the first two years because we were very small. Now, as both these guys have sort of referred to a little bit, now that we're building out that next layer, now that there's a, a layer of management below us, learning how to step away and figure out, well, okay, what is our role now? We don't want to micromanage, but I don't need to be on sales calls anymore. I kind of miss being on sales calls anymore, but it's probably better to have professionals doing that. So I think that's been the interesting thing over the last, I'd say nine to 12 months in particular, is how do you go to that next level when you go from eight people to 40 people? And how do you think about empowering your managers? We also left you with like a million little landmines. You know what I mean? Like, I think his answer does not state enough, like how many different things Michael was doing for us, like just setting up HR systems and setting up. I mean, I remember I had incorporated the company before either of these two sort of showed up and we had zero revenue. So there was like a tax bill that was zero owed to the state of California. And I don't think I filed it because I was being lazy. Right. And like, you know, that ended up being a landmine for Michael, like when we were raising our Series A and like he was like going and faxing from like the Rite Aid near his house because the tax board in California is useless and doesn't do electronics or some ridiculous thing where I was just like, oh, man, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I did that to you. But, you know, just a million little things like that. Wow, an incredible story about all of the different landmines. I wanted to transition a little bit to dive into some, some of the early decisions and, and more of the, the product building and the business building side of Sleuth. And I think what's so special is like because of the shared perspective that you three have as co-founders, like what's really cool is like we're also sort of deconstructing the conflicts, the decisions, and still sort of taking this lens of collaboration through this, which I think is really special. So I was wondering if, if you all could talk a little bit about the impact or the consequences of some of those early decisions made in the company and what that early building process was like. So very early on, we knew that there was gold in them, there are hills. We knew that there was like, there were hills, right? And we were anchored towards this idea of deployment tracking, right? And and really 
again, shining a light on that deploy moment and knowing that there was something pivotal going on there. And that if we could get into the tendrils of that, that we would be able to add a lot of value for organizations. The trough of sorrow in finding product market fit is real. You know, just because you know that there's an area and that there's some sort of like utility built into that area doesn't mean that your first incarnation of that is necessarily going to like be a home run. Very early on, nobody knows that you even exist, right? You need at bats to test your your ideas and getting at bats can be challenging. And it's sort of like one of these little cycles of like, well, if it's not quite hitting the mark and you're not finding people that are going to tell you that it's not hitting the mark and get you closer to the mark, how do you iterate towards that? And so, uh, you know, very early days, I think we went with what our guts said could possibly have like utility only to find that it was a little bit off the mark, right? And then iterating through that and just sort of like clearing the gunk out of your ears and really like getting more at bats and listening to what people are telling you and really paying critical attention as to like, you know, where they are finding utility and then leaning into that and having hard conversations, right? Because we were all bought into going this direction. And then, you know, we ended up sort of pivoting a little bit into that direction. And, you know, maybe wasn't something that we all initially thought was that interesting to us or, you know, like there are all sorts of different interesting uh, little concerns or interactions uh, with that. Yeah, I'll talk about one that uh, you'd expect as a CTO that I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to tell you that's not what I'm talking about, which is technical decisions. Anyone who's worked at a company for a long time, there is a whole laundry list of, oh my goodness, if we would have just done this in the beginning, we would have saved two-year, 20-people projects. Atlassian had a ton of these. We had one where the user table in Jira was referenced by the username. That was the primary key. There was no integer and people wanted to change it. And it just caused all these problems. In other words, the time zone wasn't associated with any dates. And so trying to add that in was just multi-year projects. So when you do your own, you're like, all right, here we go. I'm going to get stuff right from the beginning. I'm going to do the right data modeling. I'm going to do the right thing. This thing is going to scale. I'm going to put the boundaries here so that I can split it out later, et cetera. And none of that, it probably matters about 10%, I would say. With my founder hat on, what you realize very quickly is no, your bottleneck is not technology. Your bottleneck is finding that value, finding the people, something that people want. And the more quickly you can on the technical side, change and pivot to find that thing for them, that's really where your focus should be. And it should be on adaptability, not on scale. We all love to think that, oh, that idea that we started out with, oh yeah, that's going to go to 10 million people like that. We're going to have to just be you know, dealing with overloaded servers nonstop. Reality is probably not that. You read that one story that that one team was that, most of the time it's not. And so you really need to be very adaptive. And that means maybe, you know, I'll say something crazy, use PHP, you know, just Put something out there and let's not go nuts, Don. Let's we not we go don't nuts. use PHP. We never stoop to that <laughs> level. Just to be clear, investors that might be listening, but you need to be thinking about that level of agility and not about scale, even though you know it comes, because really that's an awesome problem to have. And at this point, we're all engineers who've been in it for a long time. That's the stuff we could do in our sleep, but finding value, that's tough. I wanted to go back to the, the trap of needing at-bats to iterate and move forward. Can you talk a little bit more about that dilemma? And then how did you break that at Sleuth? Like, how did you get some of those early at-bats and break that cycle? You know, obviously there's the, uh, you know, find friends in the industry and we're all lucky to have a fairly deep network. And so we did have some early adopters that were willing to sort of, you know, even pay us for Sleuth. But when you that's like 10 people, you can tap them out pretty quickly in terms of asking them, does this work? What about that? What about this? And so then it sort of becomes this selling motion, right? That was a little bit alien to all of us. So maybe I'm just going to stop there and see if Michael wants to fill that one in. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We did, I remember for the first eight, nine months, we 
on a weekly basis, we were going back and forth through our LinkedIn list, trying to find other people that we could talk into trying to use the product. And I had <clears throat> and still have a really uh, strong sales advisor who was a VP of sales in a prior role. And he worked with me on how to set up your first outbound sequence and how to have the emails and how to target people and how to get calls. And it was you know very much a few months there of just calls all day, talking to people, trying to convince them that this deployment tracking thing was something that's going to be useful to them. And it was just all those conversations are really what led us to figure out a bit of what the tip of the spear was on this problem we were trying to solve, right? And led us towards a thing. But it, it was hundreds of hours of calls with cold prospects that led up to that. Once we did figure it out and we hired a head of marketing and uh, an SDR and really started, then that's when things took off, right? And that's when we had a repeatable sales motion. And so it went from being the three of us talking to people and trying to sell something that they didn't want to buy to actually having mostly inbound uh, and having you know, a repeatable play that works really well. So it did take a lot of legwork early on. It wasn't just a, let's just build it and put it out there and people will find it and it'll be great. That doesn't seem to work as far as I can tell. Yeah, I'll add something else, which is that that same thing that's really great, having those those people in your network that you can call. I mean, we went through and I think, what do we have, like 500 people on LinkedIn? And these are people like every one of them probably averages 12, 15 years experience as like VPs, CEOs, like really great, great folks. Sometimes that can also be a trap because what you're not understanding is they're willing to support you and pay for the product because they want to support you and, and aren't really the target customer that you're going for. And that can start to mm -hmm. kind of taint your radar of where the gold is in the hills are or where it's not. So on one hand, it's really good because it gives you momentum. And there's such an emotional component to a startup, just that concept of we're going somewhere, this is happening, we can do it, you need that. But you also need to be recognizant of why they're doing it and not have not be strong word, but delusional about it thinking, well, my mom signed up, therefore, I have the best idea ever. Your mom also thinks you're very handsome. Doesn't necessarily mean it's true. So you have to be realistic. And again, negative and positive, but just be realistic about it. Dylan, it sounded like you had some comments. Oh, I was just going to say that even with the at-bats, uh, you know, and Michael did an amazing job of sort of getting us more and more and more. And we kind of started to hear a similar thing, but I think it was we're really talking about like a pivot towards Dora metrics, right? So we went from saying, you know, deployment tracking is the reason. And then I think we sort of pivoted to this thing of saying, you know, deployment tracking allows us to give you an amazing insight into your engineering efficiency. And before we made that pivot, we'd still been hearing that kind of for almost like three months or something. I remember being on a lot of those calls, seeing some of that. We had some of it on the right and we would talk about people would like sort of be attracted and drawn to the thing on the right and be a little confused about what was in the middle. And I remember we had like a founder chat where we were like, all right, are we going to do this? Are we going to go in this direction? And we came away and said, nope, nope, we're not. We're just going to stay the course because we have a couple of other things that we think are going to be great and whatever. And then I think it was another month or two where we went, yeah, no way. Uh, -uh Actually, we're going to go all in on this because we want to see a, a sea change in, in sort of adoption and, and that sort of stuff. And we think this is our best path. Even with the at-bats and the listening really hard and the having an answer somewhat stare us in the face, you know, it still takes time and emotion and the ability to sort of shift ourselves around to, to buy into that. And you don't know. It's it's always a guess. I think that's another thing that I will give the team amazing credit for was we said, we think this is what's going to happen. And we had been mature enough at that point to say, let's lead with our sales script and our marketing message, right? So we immediately sort of changed our sales script to say that thing that we're talking about doing, that's what we do. And we were like, is this resounding with customers more? And then we shifted the marketing message and said, like, are we getting more inbounds? And then we very quickly had like a beta. And then we 
kind of knew we were doing something right when every customer that signed up was immediately getting opted into the beta. Like about a month into the beta, I remember us just going, well, this is stupid. We're wasting our time giving everybody this feature flag. How about we just turn it on even though it's not done? The next question I was going to ask was about surprising insights from some of the testing experience. Would you say sort of this insight that then led to New Direction for Sleuth was the most surprising insight? And then what was that conversation like between the three of you to make the shift in the direction? Uh, I would probably say it was a surprising insight just because it's not what you're going for. It's kind of like what they say about lucky people. It's not that they're lucky. It's just they give themselves lots of opportunities to be lucky. And I think the fact that we were in the deployment tracking space meant that we got to talk to people who then could see the value of the Dora metrics. What's kind of interesting about that is that we weren't that excited about Dora metrics, not because they didn't think that those four metrics were good. There was a fear of metrics products in general, because we've all been in an engineering org where someone comes in with a dashboard with 20,000 things on it and says, isn't this awesome? And we're like, it's very colorful. I don't know what it means. And they say, just fix all the things and it becomes too much. It becomes too much noise. And so we had a fear of that. And so I think it was by talking to the customers and seeing exactly what they want and hearing that again and again, we're able to hone it and find the gold and not just the demo product. And I guess that's not at all what you asked, but I'm going to answer it anyways. The key there is to <laughs> listen to people. That's where Michael was saying it's all about the ears, not the mouth, because it's so easy when you start a startup, you think it's all about you. You think I have the idea. I'm the one with the experience. This is my company. I'm the expert. And what you realize is no, you in many ways, are the dumbest person in the room because you don't know what everybody else wants and you need to figure that out. And so having the humility and the patience to listen to people is what puts you in a position to find what might be the answer. Question really curious about uh, once you pivoted and it's working, you see a lot of momentum and how do you go from there to establishing a repeatable channel that can get more customers? Yeah, so I think two things there that we did pretty well. So first off is that from day one, even before we knew we had exactly the right products, we all came from a background and desire to have a low touch channel, a, a way for people to come in, try by clear, transparent pricing, that sort of thing. And that's something that a lot of, I think, companies and founders who don't have that background find difficult to try to build out the, the product-led growth motion. But it's something we had sort of from day one, and it's worked out really well for us to have that. Uh, it's a, the bulk of our customers by logos are coming in via that channel. And it's especially, you know, as things change with the economy and buyer intent, things like that, maybe, you know, modify a little bit. Having that low touch thing uh, has always worked for us. And so when we built out our marketing team and hired the head of marketing and demand gen and so forth, we focused a lot on driving more people towards that as being the top of the funnel. Uh, so we did things like campaigns and gated content and you know adwords and all this sort of stuff and invested in seo and those all had the function of driving a lot of inbound interest because this is a topic that's top of mind for people in the industry they're trying to figure out how to do a better job and we were really a little bit ahead of the swell on that and then you know sort of scaled the sales the higher touch sales we've focused on founder-led higher touch sales for, for quite a long time going back to don and dylan's earlier points you know we do think it's really important for us to be having those conversations and to get that feedback we've more recently expanded that team in order to meet our growth you know, objectives over the coming year. But I think that the hires of the head of marketing and the SDR uh, that we did right around the same time as the pivot a couple of years ago were worked out incredibly well for us. So. 
the product-led growth is the motion and you drive all the effort and resources to drive more traffic to that destination through, you know, SEO, marketing, pity marketing, and maybe there's content, I guess. Lots of content. Yeah. You can, if you go to the website, you'll see hundreds of headshots of Don talking in different videos and different expressions. And sometimes there'll be more of them and more of him than one in the video. So explain why Don has a really professional setup. Yeah. Hobby gone out of control is what it is. Dom, that makes me think of almost like the Jurassic Park intro movie where, you know, you have the professor talking both to his virtual self and in-person self oh, at the yeah. same time. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, maybe it's like, they, it could be a concept idea for yeah, future content. Yeah, I'm going to script oh, We've that. already got one of those. <laughs> but not a hologram. That'd be awesome. That's true. That's true. That's true. Um, I will say one point just because I find it really interesting. You'd think that joining a small company like Atlassian when it was really small would be just nothing but good, right? Like whenever you want to hire someone, you want to hire someone who's had success. You want to hire someone who's been around success, who knows what it feels like, smells like. When you're looking at someone to bring onto a sports team, you want to hire the person that won the Super Bowl. You want to have that energy, that karma, I don't know, charisma into your team, one thing you don't realize, and, and we had that at last hand, it was very successful, it's been very successful, we went to small to big, we don't realize that sometimes that can taint your view. Whenever we did anything Atlassian, we would just kind of announce that, hey, we just built this library and you'd have 10,000 people trying it out and just be right there wanting to do it because Atlassian had built such a large customer base. So you start to think that anything you do is going to get 10,000 people on day one, but it doesn't work that way. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing. If anyone's thinking about doing a startup from a successful company, just be aware that without that company's name attached, things might be different. Just because before he read a Google library and everyone's like, this new library from Google, now it's just from Sarah. It'll be a little different. To back that up, I remember talking to one of the founders of Docker and uh, you know he has another company and he was talking to me about our early go-to-market motion and I was like, why is he asking me these things? And in his own words, he was just like, well, with, with Doc Cloud and Docker, it just caught fire. Right. We didn't have to do anything like we you know what I mean? Like it was just out there and there's so much things that we could just kind of we had an amazing base right out of the gate. And now he's doing something else and he's got to figure out, shit, what did I miss in that first part where where I have to go from zero to one? All right. Are you three ready for maybe one rapid fire question and then a, a final wrap up? Let's try. All right, let's do it. What are you reading or listening to right now? I am addicted to documentaries of the early 1980s PC computer scene, the successes and failures all within 20 minutes. I'm reading Game of Thrones. I finally went, I finally gave in. I didn't want to do it for years, but finally gave in. So now I'm working my way through Game of Thrones. So that's my big project. I have a, a long drive back and forth to, to visit my girlfriend. And so I've like gotten into audiobooks and I'm uh, currently making my way back through the Earthsea. It was supposed to be trilogy, but I think there's five. Great representations of, of awesome content to get into. So the final question, because I think the special opportunity of having all three of you here, what do you appreciate or value about working with each other? I'll never not do this again. It's the best job in the world when you get to work with your best friends and run a company. Working for somebody else would be a difficult pull for me, I think. I had a hot minute where I thought maybe I was going to be a solo founder. And oh, God, I got the opposite of that. I got so incredibly fortunate to have peers that I respect and that like fill out so many gaps that I have in myself. Just the ability to accomplish what we hope to accomplish with these guys on board has been amazing. I feel like I got super lucky. Uh, to continue that positive energy, I would say that mine is never underestimate the value of working with people who know you and know your idiosyncrasies. For example, in my case, when I'm passionate about something, I will come in hot. I will be excited. I'll be passionate, maybe very angry, maybe even at times without yelling, without cursing, that kind of thing, but very passionate. And working with people who understand that that's my bugbear that I'm working through and is able to just, yep, 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 keep going, keep going. 
let's talk about it later and then come back, I find is very refreshing. Now, some doesn't say that I don't need to work on that, but it means that I can save so much time on potential damage control later because they know me. So definitely value that part of our relationship. Incredible. Dylan, Don, Michael, thank you three so much for for joining us and for, I think, just a really special and honest reflection on the relationship between you three, the lessons that have helped shape Sleuth to what it is today and the, the problems that you all are addressing. It's been really fun to, to spend the time with you living in those stories. So thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for climbing aboard our pirate ship of engineering founders. Make sure that you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify so you know when our first few episodes get released. And if you want to connect with other engineering leaders who are interested in starting their own companies or who've already made the leap, we're building an engineering founders community. We'll be hosting a ton of virtual meetups, sharing resources, and lots of other fun things to support your founder journey. So if you're looking for support, sign up for updates at elc.community. That's elc.comunity. And we'll see you next time.